and welcome to our podcast. I'm Karen Anderson. And I'm Andrew Proctor. And today we're going to talk about the FCA's proposals set out in its end of July consultation paper, CP2125, on changes to the FCA's decision-making procedure. It's not a very snappy title, but these are really important proposals for firms and individuals. The FCA says they are a key part of its transformation program, and that's the kind of language which also suggests they're not very likely to change their mind about the need for those changes. But Karen, we should first take a look at what it is that's being streamlined. So the consultation is about decisions to issue statutory notices. These are formal notices which the FCA is required to give under the Financial Services and Markets Act, or FISMA, when it takes certain actions or makes certain decisions. So statutory notices include warning notices, which are those issued when the FCA is proposing, for example, to cancel a firm's permission to issue a financial penalty. They also include decision notices and supervisory notices, which typically relate to the imposition of requirements or to the variation of a firm's permissions. At the moment, decisions to issue statutory notices are made either by the FCA's Regulatory Decisions Committee, or RDC, or under executive procedures. The RDC is a decision-making body that's separate from the FCA staff who establish evidence and recommend action against a firm or an individual. RDC members are selected by the FCA board for their experience of making independent evidence-based decisions, working in senior and expert positions in financial services, or for their knowledge and understanding of consumers and other users of financial services. The RDC chairman is an FCA employee, and the RDC process is administrative, not judicial. There is ultimately a statutory right to refer FCA decisions to the upper tribunal for a fresh hearing, and that right will not be impacted by these proposals. So the FCA is proposing that some decisions that are currently made by the RDC will now be made by senior members of the FCA staff who are close to the matter. Let me run back down that list. So first, there are the decisions on using own initiative intervention powers to impose a requirement on a firm or various permission, and people will recognise the acronyms OIVOP and OIREC. Then there are the final decisions in relation to a firm's application for authorisation. There are the decisions on an individual's application for approval where that's contested. There are the straightforward cancellation cases around removal of a firm's permission because it doesn't meet regulatory requirements. And finally, the decision to commence civil or criminal proceedings. So that's some pretty momentous decisions on that list. But the FCA's consultation doesn't really make out a case for why those decisions should now be taken by senior staff rather than the RDC. They don't really grapple with the arguments in favour of more independent review by the RDC. As the FCA's annual report says, the range of skills and experience of RDC members is intended to help achieve fairness and consistency across sectors and cases, and to enhance the objectivity and balance of the FCA's decision-making. And although the RDC is bound to adhere to FCA policy, it's widely seen in the industry as providing a degree of objectivity and challenge to the staff team involved in making the recommendations and also as delivering the opportunity to the subjects of the proposed action to be heard. And all of this enhances confidence in the regulatory processes. Disappointingly, the FCA's consultation doesn't acknowledge these benefits. Notwithstanding the upper tribunal's warning in a recent case of Forsyth, 
that the FCA must resist the temptation to convince itself that new information which has come to life, perhaps inconveniently, has no impact, and that it needs to treat issues like that with an open mind. And the most recent tribunal decision in Frensham and a complaints commissioner's final report relating to decision-making by FCA authorizations and supervision also speak to weaknesses in the FCA's decision-making approach, which largely seem to go to the same issue. Importantly, this is broadly the same criticism that had been made of the predecessor FSA in the legal and general case in 2006, where the then Financial Services and Markets Tribunal took the view that the papers, particularly those from enforcement, seemed more concerned with identifying reasons for maintaining the proposed sanction than with objective evaluation of a new development. And it was the influence of that judgment and the 2006 enforcement review, which had led to a range of measures to further strengthen the independence and objectivity of the RDC and to ensure greater transparency and fairness. And these proposals are now seeking to unpick many of those improvements in relation to non-disciplinary decisions. And it's natural that a team that's worked hard in establishing evidence to support a recommendation will become vested in its case theory and may find it difficult to step back and take a wholly impartial assessment. And for that reason, many other jurisdictions maintain strict separation of regulatory decision-making, for example, the French AMF, or they rely on judicial process, such as happens in Australia. And each of the categories of decision that the FCA now proposes to move to executive procedures, as Andrew says, can have very significant consequences for the firms or individuals that are subject to them. In some cases, they can be business or career ending. Surely it can't be a bad discipline to pause briefly, let someone fresh and objective take a look and make sure evidence supports the proposed decision. And the consequences of a decision to prosecute are even more far-reaching, involving great anxiety, stress, and often loss of employment. So in exercising its discretion to commence criminal proceedings, the FCA is really no different from other investigative bodies, for example, the Serious Fraud Office and the police. And those other agencies have a check and balances system in place in the form of an independent prosecutor who exercises that two-stage discretion around whether there's enough evidence and where there's public interest in the prosecution. So why should a statutory body like the FCA be any different? Yeah, Karen, I agree with you. Speaking personally, when I had to make decisions about whether to prosecute, that extra check of a discussion with the chair of the RDC was an invaluable discipline. And the FCA hasn't really made a case that there's been a regulatory failure here, or slow decision-making by the RDC, or an inability or unwillingness on the part of the RDC to resource matters to ensure expeditious hearings. If some decisions have taken longer than is ideal, tell us why, consider what other actions might address that issue. And if it's really urgent, there's already a mechanism to allow for that if there's a need for special protection. Under the handbook, in urgent supervisory cases, they can be heard by the RDC chair or the deputy chair alone. In exceptionally urgent cases, they can be dealt with by a member of the FCA's executive. So if there's an urgent decision that's needed to be taken in order to protect the interests of consumers, those matters are already taken into account. Why aren't those permitted variations from the normal process enough to deal with the exceptional cases? We're not told. In fact, if you look at the RDC chair's report in the latest FCA annual report, and bear in mind that COVID had a big impact across the whole of the FCA last year, 
The RDC chair reported that there were 224 cases referred to the RDC to the year end March 2021, and 229 cases were completed in that period. And that compares to 383 referrals and 382 completions in the previous year. It's also said the proposed changes might reduce regulatory costs, but you'd have to think that any reduction won't be significant in the scheme of things. And it's interesting to look at how the FCA has announced the consultation. It's used the words innovative, assertive, and adaptive to describe the new decision-making process. So you have to ask yourself, do you want innovative decision-making in this context? Do you want assertive decision-making in this context? Has the RDC been running away from hard cases? Not that I'm aware of. Do we want adaptive decision-making in this context? I confess I don't even know what that means in this context. But you'd think that fair, independent, and predictable might be a better set of goals for regulatory decision-making. Anyway, the announcement goes on to say the proposed changes will allow the regulator to be more efficient and bring it all back to subject matter experts. But let's take a look at that. The FCA's own explanation of the RDC on its website says the role of the RDC is to ensure that decisions are not made by the FCA staff who are recommending the action against the firm or the individual. What's changed? Does this mean the FCA no longer thinks that separation is a good idea? Will the subject matter experts now be both recommending and making the decisions? Or are the subject matter experts going to stand aside in the early stages of the process, which seems a pretty poor use of their expertise, and then come in at the end to make the decision? And yet for all that, I expect the decisions really will go ahead as consulted on. And so we should ask, Karen, where the RDC will sit in this new regulatory world. Well, the RDC will continue to decide cases where the FCA is enforcing its principles for businesses and rules and seeking to impose disciplinary or similar sanctions like financial penalties, prohibition orders or restitution. So that really effectively means that the RDC's remit is going to be confined to contentious enforcement cases. Well, there are some big risks here, I think. And top of the list is bad decision making either because there's a loss of due process, which means there isn't robust assessment and challenge of information, or because the FCA staff who are involved throughout become caught up in a groupthink loop. And bad decisions have all sorts of knock-on effects for customers and for firms, including for the firms that are not directly affected by that bad decision. Well, and from an outcomes perspective, they've certainly drawn some odd distinctions because in practice for an individual, the difference between a prohibition order, which is going to be subject to RDC process, and a refusal or cancellation of regulatory approval, which isn't, is pretty moot. While the FCA's proposed streamlining could, I guess, reduce an element of delay or potential duplication of work, the challenge of a fresh perspective as a quite a valuable counter to the potential groupthink that you mentioned will inevitably be lost. And in describing the regulator's deliberate shift to a culture that embraces risks and tests its legal powers to the limits, the FCA's CEO, Nikhil Rathi, said he recognised the need to balance the desire to prevent harm with the need to ensure procedural fairness. But procedural fairness gets a very cursory nod in the consultation paper, as the FCA proposes to set aside the safeguards of RDC scrutiny which was very much hard fought for on human rights grounds when FISMA was first being introduced in 2000. On the one hand, the FCA talks about streamlining and speeding up the process, but on the other hand is the old adage about haste making waste. 
Yeah, and let's not forget about the importance of having someone coherently lay out the case and subjecting it to challenge. That is really important for the quality of decision-making. And it's a key function of the RDC. It's the forum in which that kind of challenge and the need to lay out the case can occur. Of course, it can occur in other ways. It can happen in other fora. And it should occur in all decision-making processes. The question is, under these new proposals, will it be as rigorous? And the proposed changes are also going to affect the making of representations by the subjects of the proposed action. For statutory notice decisions made under executive procedures, the FCA will continue to take account of written representations, but is only going to allow oral representations in exceptional circumstances. The example given is the subject of a statutory notice who's not reasonably able to make written representations due to personal circumstances. This is said to be because scheduling oral representation meetings can be time-consuming, and the decisions that are the subject of the consultation are said to require swift action. Again, given the FCA's focus elsewhere on diversity and inclusion, and encouraging cognitive diversity, the position seems a little bit odd. And from the subject's perspective, it's absolutely true that some of us are better at making our cases in person, while others flourish with the written word, And in the Forsyth case, for example, the upper tribunal highlighted the unconventional way of working of the subject, Mr. Forsyth, noting that he struggled to digest documents on a computer screen, was poor at typing anything other than simple emails, couldn't digest lengthy documents even when printed out, and took on board more and achieved more through talking and listening. In the end, what will remain is the very limited protection afforded by Section 395 of FISMA, which requires the FCA to ensure that the decision which gives rise to the obligation to give a statutory notice is taken by a person not directly involved in establishing the evidence on which that decision is based, or alternatively, to be taken by two or more people, one of whom is a person not directly involved in establishing that evidence. And even here, the proposals are going to slim down the composition of the FCA's senior staff committee. And in addition, will allow the FCA staff responsible for taking the statutory notice decision to be advised by legal advisors, who were the ones who've already advised the FCA staff who are recommending the decision. And in addition, the FCA is not intending to make disclosure of staff responses to decision makers Again, something which featured in the legal and general case and something which the RDC is required to do. And there's therefore a very real risk that the subjects of proposed action won't in fact have sight of all the objections which have been raised against them and won't therefore be able to respond to them. And in some ways, this is the most egregious of all the proposals since it runs counter to principles of fairness. Well, as we've said, that's a huge change from the RDC process. That process is deliberately designed to ensure separation between decision makers and the FCA staff who are recommending action. It really seems like the lessons of the past have been forgotten. And there's also a huge change from the RDC's openness to representations, oral or written. And I think there's also a risk that the FCA's proposals will mislead some into thinking it will mean the regulator can move more quickly to deal with miscreants those who are guilty of substantive misconduct or breach of regulation. That is not what these changes will deliver. If you look across the last three years, the average length of enforcement case ranged from about 18 months to two years. That isn't going to change, at least not as a result of these proposals. And as I said before, those subject to statutory notice decisions 
will still be able to benefit from the right to refer the matters to the upper tribunal. But as the FCA is aware, this right is, at least to date, rarely exercised by firms, which are generally very anxious to preserve a good relationship with their supervisor and to avoid the delay, additional expense and publicity involved in a tribunal hearing. Individuals whose livelihoods depend on the outcome of such decisions have historically been much more willing to refer their cases to the upper tribunal. And I guess it may even be that the FCA will begin to see more challenges from firms who feel that they haven't actually had the chance to be heard in relation to the decisions made under executive procedures. And as the tribunal process can be pretty lengthy, that would be a fairly unfortunate byproduct of this initiative to streamline decision making. The FCA's consultation closed on the 17th of September and the FCA expects to publish a policy statement in or around November and to begin operating the revised decision-making framework immediately afterwards. In-flight cases being considered by the RDC would remain with the RDC, including those where a warning notice has been issued before that date, which refers to making representations to the RDC. And looking ahead, it'll be important to consider carefully how FCA decision-making under executive procedures might play out in the context of other new FCA initiatives. For example, in the recent discussion paper on diversity, the FCA had suggested that approval for a senior management appointment might be withheld if it had concerns that the proposed appointment would worsen or not address risks arising from a lack of diversity or from groupthink. Under these proposals, that decision will be taken under executive procedures.